Welcome to another episode of Ordinary Old Catholic Me. I have mentioned probably more than you want to hear that I have been attempting this Ignatian retreat, which is a combination, in my case, of online viewing of a talk by the priest leading it, Father Broom, and then a week of daily holy hours meditating and contemplating using a workbook and readings therein provided. Actually, today I have been really bad. I was outside trying to do it today, and then I realized I have this program to do and I haven't done it, and so I was totally distracted. And here I am trying to do the program first. This week, it seems that it was largely in this retreat a daily consideration of the joyful mysteries, the Annunciation, the visit to Elizabeth, the birth of Jesus, the presentation at the temple, and the teaching or the listening and teaching by the young Jesus in the temple, in which he was not actually lost, as his parents feared, but rather about his father's business in heaven. Wednesday, it was a really powerful meditation for me. One of the things that is told to us is that there is a level of consolation sometimes and a level of desolation sometimes in doing these meditations and sometimes, you know, stuff in between. As I said, I do the hour outside on my terrace, which I find very facilitating amid the sky, the birds, the warm sunshine of God's creation of late. But on Wednesday, I happened to be at my parish for some business, and I decided to do the holy hour inside the church. It was the birth of our Lord that we were considering that day. The workbook had us read the Luke rendition of the event, but then invited us to go there to be there with Mary and Joseph and the child. And this is where it got nearly overwhelming and I found myself on the way to sobbing with a few people praying behind me that I did not want to hear my tears or see them if I turned around. The invitation was to take Jesus into my arms. I haven't honestly held many babies in my life. I do remember what it felt like on those few occasions. This soft, trusting little face looking at me, this absolute wonder of existence. But now I was in this contemplation holding not just any child in my arms, but Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, in my arms at the very beginning of his mission to save my soul and your soul. Innocent, perfect in his innocence in a way no other child could ever be. Knowing what I know, 2,000 years later, it was almost too much to take in. And knowing now, especially as there is once again the indication of the dissatisfaction of God with how we have ignored him despite his becoming this child, joining us in our weakness, in our fragile flesh, how we continue to push him away. There's just been so much going on this week. There was my doing the retreat, and then there's this great consecration that's being talked about. I never gave much thought growing up, and certainly not even after I came back to the faith until very recently. 
about the miracles at places like Lourdes or Fatima, and it's only lately, as I said, that I've begun to truly read about them, and one that's still in the making and not as well known, Garan de Ball. All of these miracles talk about the need of the human race to stop doing what is constantly described in the Bible that in today's modern world so many disregard as amusingly trite, giving in constantly to the seven deadly inclinations born of disobedience, lust, gluttony, pride, envy, anger, sloth, greed, so that in time God Even the God who has redeemed the nations has had enough of how we express the gift of free will. But I tell you, you don't have to be a theologian to see how much, in spite of God's relentless love that led to his dying on the cross and his mother being that good human bridge to him, that human, human bridge to him that speaks to the truth of a Fatima, and to the need for us to pray and repent, not in a child's hand caught in the cookie jar way, but in a way that truly recognizes that we, the creatures, have offended God and thus have condemned ourselves and our world and many of our souls. Here we are telling ourselves how evolved we are and how our modern ways will save the planet while we have had as many wars and genocides in the last 200 years as any primitive we pity or giggle about in the Bible. So yesterday, March the 25th, Friday, the Feast of the Annunciation, having listened to all the commentaries about past failures and the likelihood of any future efficacy of a consecration of Russia to the Immaculate Heart, I attended Mass and participated online with the Pope and the ceremony, again, in which Russia, in this case the Ukraine, which used to be part of Russia, and the world were consecrated to the Immaculate Heart in the hope and prayer of the reparation of the sins of the world, the conversion of sinners, the end of this terrible thing that's happening in the Ukraine, and the end of the errors being spread to the world in the past and right now. There will no doubt continue to be debate about whether this third or fourth effort at consecration will change anything, but you know, I went along with many others in the hope, not humble enough, I fear, that Mary can convince her son to spare us more of the devastation that we have earned. I pray too much out of fear rather than love, but I'm hoping that beginning with the fear of God, I and all of us can develop in his grace for a more heavenly altruistic motive. So they are. I've been thinking about what Mary might be thinking these last days. She's someone I may have said that along with her appearances at various locales with messages from her son, I've only lately become more attuned to and so very imperfectly that I have so much further to go. When I was thinking about this podcast for today, I mentioned the question, would Mary say yes to God again, knowing what she knows about our recalcitrance? I I mentioned this to a friend. Her response actually created a complication in my reverie because not only did my friend say yes, she would, but it generated a discussion over whether she could have said no in the first place when the angel first came to her in that little house in Nazareth. 
Now, I've been told, and I've read in a general way in my travels, that, of course, she could have said no, as she had free will, as we all do. I actually asked that question long ago to a priest, and he assured me that, yes, she could have said no, and if she had, there would have been someone else in his plan. My friend surprised me in saying that she really did not think that Mary could have said no in the first instance, which sends me all the way to a whole different question. I can't remember the details of my friend's reasoning, but what I do recall is thinking that she was going in the direction of a Calvinist, that we are predestined not only in our acts, but in our likely end, and that only some of us will be saved. Well, we weren't talking about that aspect of things specifically, but that's what came to mind, that effectively, given the nature of the graces given to her, the great grace given to Mary, Mary could not have said no, that effectively, God being in the driver's seat, there was effectively only one way Mary could have responded when the situation was presented to her, and that was a yes. This jarred me, and so I went in search of the concept of predestination and Mary. What this short and, believe me, not thorough look at how the Church looks at Mary and predestination told me is how little I know about the faith that I spend a fair amount of time practicing. My autodidactic catechesis, which I've been engaged in in the last many years, is potentially better than that of other Catholics in that I spend quite a bit of time with it, but boy, am I woeful in what I know about my own faith and about general philosophical principles like predestination. Here I was thinking that the concept of predestination outside of the Catholic Church was merely about who was saved and who was not, but it's a lot more. As my friend and I concluded, as non-theologian ordinary Catholics, after a conversation in which us two ordinary Catholics nearly became contentious, it's complicated. That's why, I think, when we were kids, so much of what we were taught is the most simplistic form that always ended up with the statement, it's a mystery. Reason can only bring us so far, and then it becomes the realm of faith. It also becomes important that whatever your foundation as a young Catholic or as a young Christian is that when you become older, you have the obligation to explore your faith. So I, I think whether you leave the faith or you stay with the faith, you need to know why you're doing that. And so that means you need to read and and investigate why you believe or don't believe what you do. There just is so much out there. And just in looking for something short to talk about this, before I go back to the concept of whether or not Mary would say yes again if she knew then what she knows now about where we're standing as the human race in 2022, I found this little uh, blurb from St. Mary's Catholic Center in College Station, Texas, and they call themselves AggieCatholic.org. Like Catholic Exchange and other such places, they do question and answers, and somebody asked a question about free will and predestination as it relates to Catholics. The reason I want to be sure I credit Aggie Catholic is that I'm going to read at least part of their answer. It's short, but it's not that short, so I will possibly skip around. The writer in response says, 
in part, the simple answer is yes. The Catholic Church teaches predestination as part of the doctrine of the Church. But what exactly does that mean? The writer goes to the Catechism, as I usually do myself, and I saw this as well. To God, all moments of time are present in their immediacy. When, therefore, he establishes his eternal plan of, quote, predestination, he includes in it each person's free response to his grace. And then they have an internal quote additionally. In this city, in fact, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And that quote, for the sake of, of accomplishing his plan of salvation, this is important, God permitted the acts that flowed from their blindness. That's from CCC, Catechism of the Catholic Church, 600. The writer goes on to say now, outside of the Catechism at Aggie Catholic, notice how predestination is defined. God knows all who will accept his gift of saving grace. So for all time... The knowledge of God being unlimited, God has known whom would say yes to his grace. This is the plan of salvation offered to us from the Father, through Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. The confusion about this doctrine arises when theologians attempt to explain how the mystery of free will, grace, and the foreknowledge of God all fit together. There are several options for Catholics to choose from, and we are free to do so. But there are also some positions the church rejects. The first position the church rejects is one called Pelagianism. This originated from a man called Pelagius, who taught we choose free will apart from God's grace. In other words, Pelagius taught that we don't need God's assistance to save ourselves. It's all an act of our own free will. This has always been rejected by the church because it makes salvation a work of man. We certainly can't choose to save ourselves by any act of the will alone, apart from God's gift of grace first acting on us. The second position the church rejects is sometimes called double predestination. This is the position of some who follow the Calvinist reform tradition. This is the teaching which says God actively chooses some to go to heaven and damns others to hell. This would mean we have no free will to choose salvation at all, but all the work is from God alone and we cannot change our destiny, but it is predetermined no matter what. It also means God is the cause of damnation, which the church has always rejected. Notice the first error removes God as the prime actor, and the second removes any cooperation from man. So where does this leave us? It leaves us with several options. The first option is built from both St. Augustine and then St. Thomas Aquinas. Parenthetically, I want to repeat that I'm reading from an answer from Aggie.com, and uh, so this is not coming from me personally. Others come from Molina and other scholars. I won't go into the details here, but let me sum up the positions by saying that the Thomists emphasize grace and the Molinists emphasize free will, but neither camp rejects the other side they do not emphasize. Here are the things the Catholic Church teaches about predestination and the doctrine surrounding it. God is the source of all good. God does not create evil, which isn't really a thing, but rather an absence of a good. God cannot do an evil act. God allows humans to choose to do good or evil. We have free will. It is possible to reject God's grace. God's knowledge is infinite. There is nothing he does not know. 
God wills, meaning he desires that all be saved. God always acts first. His grace comes, and then we are empowered by it to be able to respond. Even after saving grace is received, we can reject it later. Within the framework of this discussion about predestination, a Catholic has the freedom to formulate how it all works out. Thus, the different opinions from Thomists, etc. Clear as mud, right? Thanks to St. Mary's Catholic Center for allowing me, well, I don't know if they allowed me, but I did use it, and I hope that I've given them enough credit. The bottom line, as I'm understanding it in my deeply ordinary Catholic way, is that Mary did have the ability to say no, no matter how much grace was given to her. God predestined her. He chose her to be his instrument, but human free will is always there. Clearly, it was there in the very beginning of our existence as human beings because in the purest state possible, Adam and Eve said no. God clearly knew this was going to happen, and he had plan B, the word, and he had Mary, part of plan B. So there's no reason to assume he didn't have a plan C if Mary said no. Because I guess you could argue that with free will always in the mix, God still makes good out of every single thing that happens. Well, this doesn't appeal to us too often, and we walk away from God because we want the answer now. As his creatures, we want it now. We don't want to account for the free will that we have. So Mary, not knowing the details of the death that her son would die and how it was all in God's plan, full of grace, said yes. She certainly knew that this was big. She knew it was about God and from God. She knew that whatever happened to her son, she was tied to it, and that she would suffer because of it. Remember Simeon at the temple. Though she was also especially privileged in her suffering, which would be mysteriously joined to his, as now transformed from meaningless suffering is now meaningful for us, she knew that she loved God and that she was an indispensable instrument to God somehow. She accepted the profound ambiguity as we are really asked in faith to accept the ambiguity of our lives and suffering. And now she is crowned in heaven. When I first began this reverie, I actually thought there was a question about whether if asked again, she would say yes. I mean, look at us. After all this, after her yes, her raising the sun with two natures, divine and human, after loving him unreservedly, after watching him teach and heal and promise salvation and deliver on the promise, if only we cooperate in our ways as she did in hers, far smaller levels of cooperation being required of us, after standing there watching him beaten and humiliated and abused and nailed to a cross and resurrected, we who he has saved still question him, laugh at him, and many of us seek to eradicate any mention of him. Given the apparent state of our world, 
we can't even get it together to consecrate one country to her immaculate heart. And only do these things happen even slightly when nuclear war seems to be on the horizon yet again. Why would any of this seem meaningful? What did that yes achieve? Well, this is my thinking. It means that all men can be saved, where before her yes, all of us were in fact doomed by the sin of Adam and Eve. As the new Eve, she gave us the potential, in conjunction with the act of the word made flesh, to say our individual yeses and be saved for unity with God forever in heaven. All men will not be saved because of that same free will which we again have the chance to exercise. With her cooperation, the door to salvation was reopened, where it was literally sealed shut before. I remember the image of the angel standing with a flaming sword outside of paradise to bar re-entry. You and I are in a reset position. We can say yes or no, just as Eve did. In a way, because of Mary's yes, not in a way, because of her yes, God could proceed and we are back in Eve's position. We can obey or not obey. Her yes made it possible for us to be in that reset position. And each of us has the opportunity now to avoid the damnation that the first sin generated by saying those individual yeses with the help of the infusions of grace offered to each and every one of us. It's complicated. Yep, it's complicated. And every one of us who become saints in heaven she knows now that her yes made that possible. I think it's in the retreat that I'm doing that I read somewhere that the saving of one soul is worth all creation itself. But here's something else that makes me say she would do it all over, knowing what she knows now as the queen of heaven, as if that isn't enough itself. It came out of left field for me yesterday, Friday, after the consecration of Russia was done by Pope Francis and the bishops and the prayers of the faithful. I happened to be in another chapel, a tiny one, all by myself. Behind the altar there was a painting, big and round and colorful. At first, because I was waiting there, I didn't really notice it. It was of the Blessed Mother holding her son Jesus with her left hand around his back and a small book, I'm assuming a prayer book, in her right hand at which the child Jesus was looking and to a page of which he was pointing. As he looked down at the book, unaware in a sense of her presence, she's looking at him with an intense love, but she's looking not at the prayer book, she's looking at his head. Surrounding them both is this golden glow as if of heaven, and then there are angels surrounding them both. At that moment, irrespective of anything else, I had my answer. Knowing now what she knows about that little boy, her son, of two natures, God come into time, I have no doubt she would suffer it all again, because the joy out of that suffering is without question. So ends another 
Ordinary Old Catholic Me, Saturday, March the 26th. I hope you've been enjoying the program. And I always have to remember to advise you that I'm not an expert. I just do these things with the idea of this is what I'm thinking about, and I'm guessing that's what a lot of you are thinking about. And the thing it should send us to do is to go out and study our faith, immerse ourselves in our faith, and so learn as much as we can by reason, and then make the choice to accept the rest by faith.